Welcome to the So What's Next podcast, a podcast for Bennies and Johnnies, by Bennies and Johnnies, answering some of the biggest questions and making meaningful connections between alums and the world around us. and welcome back to So What's Next, a podcast helping alums and students navigate uncertain futures through stories and narratives from those who have experiences to share. The dynamic relationship of American politics and business have vastly changed since 1990. The prominence of women in leadership roles and the impact they have has also changed drastically. Historically, entire fields, such as public relations, for instance, have been largely controlled by white male business leaders. While this has changed, the call for inclusion of women in the business environment is growing now more than ever. Although women creating a positive impact across the globe has been trending in the right direction for years, since March of 2020, a number of female leaders have emerged as a benchmark for what competent leadership looks like, and they've been applauded for it. The world didn't need a pandemic to realize that people are generally better off when their leaders of businesses and constituents are smart, honest, and modest, yet it seems like it took just that to push the ball forward. What exactly did the pandemic expose about leadership, stewardship, community, and innovation that were only at our peripherals before, or at least not in the focus that they are today? If we are to ensure that our future generations materialize high-quality leaders and empathetic, driven communities, where should we look for quality examples of good leadership in today's generation of leaders? What tools should we collect to ensure we can operate in an increasingly dynamic world of politics, business, and communities? One tool that many listening to this show have in common is the privilege of a college degree. Millennials are the most educated group, particularly of women, in history, and Generation Z is on pace to surpass that. Education undoubtedly plays a large role in building leaders, trailblazers, and driven professionals. With the role of higher education changing seemingly as fast as the world around it, students and colleges are blazing new paths to make an impact in our world. Harnessing the power of education and the opportunities particular types of education can provide is essential to create a world of honest, driven, intelligent, and empathetic leaders. How do we create this space? And what are we seeing now from the world of leadership in business and government that can inform what is working and what still needs improvement? Joining us on this month's episode to discuss these ever-important questions is Jana Van Doon, CSB alumna and current member of the CSB Board of Trustees. Her career has spanned from staff assistant to former President George H.W. Bush, a professional staff member in the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Ways and Means, working on social welfare policy as director of site operations for both the 2000 and 2004 Republican National Convention, the advance and scheduling director for Ms. Lynn Cheney, Director of Coalitions for Coke Industries, and Vice President, Small Business Coalitions and Engagement for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Jonah currently sits as President of the Nebraska Tech Collaborative, where her purpose is to lure more people to the Silicon Prairie. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today, Jonah. Thanks. That was a great intro. i really happy to be here. So happy to be part of the discussion. So yeah, fire away. I'm excited to kick it off. Jonah, <laughs> so what initially drew you to political leadership after reading that in you clearly have a pretty deep experience um, in the political realm tell us a little bit about your background and how your journey through these 
incredible stories and experiences has gotten you to where you sit today? Well, that thanks for the question. And I'm laughing because I really wish I was one of those great, you know, young people that had this great like roadmap on how I was going to get from point A to point B. And, and the whole thing was done completely serendipitously. It's being in the right place at the right time. Um, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. We grew up very poor. I don't think we had a car until I was in my twenties. Um, I came to St. Ben's and St. John's sight unseen, um, except from photographs. Uh, the call, the high school counselor said, eh, baby college isn't your thing. Um, maybe you should, you know, look into something else. And I was like, eh, I'm going to prove you wrong. So, um, I think college is a place for me. So I had met, um, Karen Bacchus actually, and she was the one that actually recruited me to St. John's and St. Ben's and basically, you know, talked about how wonderful it was that I'd be able to study and run track and be part of something, you know, bigger than myself. And so I, um, so I ended up going to school there, which is really funny. And that's a whole other story too on that process of deciding. But it was, it was one of the most transformational um, decisions that I've ever made um, because without it, again, none of the success and joy of work that I had or the experience I would have wouldn't have been possible without, without being there. Um, you know, I was the first student ever to get a White House internship Mm -hmm. Um, my junior year, which was also kind of a crazy thing. Um, you know, some kid from some small school in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota, um, going to work at the white house and, and it was great. It was really exciting. It was really heady, but the great thing about it too, it, 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 it gave me, you know, this kind of like clarity and like what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I didn't know what college was about. I, you know, it's like, sure, I'll go to college and I'll become an accounting major. I, I've heard of that. So I'll, I'll go into business or accounting or something. I was horrible at it. Um, my <laughs> grades first semester were A, B, D, and F, I believe. And, um, and I needed to get my GPA back. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take some things that might be interesting. So I took a political science class and the whole thing was fascinating. The whole ideas about leadership and partisanship, which I still didn't really understand. Um, it wasn't until later in life where I actually figured it out and I got it. Um, but that was the introduction to this for me. And then government or public service was a, you know, really a very fitting thing for me. You know, I think that was, there are three reasons why you go to public service because you're asked, because you feel some great patriotism or to get experience. And my initial reason was actually to get some experience. Um, so I could point to people and say, Hey, I'm smart. I know how to do these things. I can work with lots of different types of people. Um, but the opportunities that I've been given in my career, um, by St. Ben St. John's alums, by other great and amazing people in this country, um, I wouldn't have changed anything for the world. I think there's something to be said there, um, and we were we were briefly talking before we started recording this about the serendipity of of St. Ben's and St. John's, and and what comes out of an experience, you know, in the middle of Central Minnesota. Um, it turns out you can go to the White House and all sorts of other amazing things in the world of politics and business. So shout out to Karen Backus for pushing you <laughs> over the cliff and and giving you that that little nudge that you needed to make that blind decision to come to to come to St. Joe. Um, I I want to pivot now from talking about how you ended up in politics and business to the world of politics and business itself. Sure. The landscape of American politics and business has vastly changed since you began your career. Um, and one substantial piece of that landscape that has changed 
arguably the most is the prominence and impact of women in leadership roles across politics and business. What changes stand out that are the most notable across your tenure in politics and business? And can you tell us a, a little bit more about your experience in leading different roles in these spaces? Sure. So first off, it's very unusual. So women in the early 90s, especially in politics, um, was unusual. Um, so I will tell this awful story, but it's um, women were not allowed to wear pants on the floor of the United States Senate, the United States House, or pretty much any legislature in the country. And so I remember getting sent home from um, my internship and later I ended up working at the White House, um, getting sent home a couple times because I wore pants to work. Um, and that's one of the most ridiculous things, but I like to tell that story because there was a time when you were not allowed to wear pants to work. And this so is the early 90s. This is the early 90s. And there weren't a lot of women doing this at all. And so a lot of times, and so then, you know, and that's just in the political piece of it. So when I switched over to being um, a lobbyist for the Pillsbury Company, again, um, not a lot of women. And the gentleman that I worked for, um, he liked to hire women because he says, you guys care about the small stuff, the stuff that people remember. You care about birthdays and anniversaries and how people are feeling. And my comment was, shouldn't we all be worried about each other like that? But that was not right. how he viewed it. Um, there were, um, there were so there, and plus two for me, it's, it's an interesting thing. Being a black Republican conservative woman in politics. I mean, my husband calls me the unicorn. So there are not a lot of people that look like me. Um, not a lot of people that have my experience. Um, I look at things in a very different lens. And I think a lot of times people make assumptions uh, when they first meet me, like, this is what you care about. This is why you care about it. And I'm like, wait a minute, we really, we have to, for me, it's all about, you know, personal responsibility, um, public service, patriotism. And this landscape has changed immensely. I mean, the number of women who were in leadership positions, I remember when, you know, meeting a woman who was um, vice president of government affairs for a corporation, um, and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, actually Minnesota woman, Jane Balow, um, the first vice, female vice president for control data, which later became Ceridian. Um, She lives in Rochester, Minnesota. And I always say she plucked me from obscurity. Um, so when we, when we lost the White House, she called the office and said, I need you to come see me and I want to know what you're going to do next. And at that point, I, I, you know, we're out of a job. You know, we lost to Bill Clinton. Um, it was my first job. I'd only been employed since May and it was now January. And what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And um, she's like, I, you know, I get to her office. She's like, you need to do this and this and this. And um, I just said, no, you know what? I'm not really sure what I want to do. I want to try corporate America. And so um, she ended up hiring me at, at Control Data, which later became Ceridian. And I, that's where I learned about government affairs. That's where I learned about community service. That's where I learned about public service, um, advocacy, um, business engagement. Those types of things were really important. And she was has been doing this stuff for years and nobody really noticed um, and not until later in life. So again, the roles of women have changed exponentially. Um, there's also an organization that we worked with called the Public Leadership Education Network um, based in Washington, DC. Um, basically this group of women created their own farm team of women to become the next chiefs of staffs, legislative directors, cabinet secretaries. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I had, um, I had gone through one of these programs as a student at St. Ben's and St. John's. And I met the first Hispanic surgeon general. Her name is Antonia Novella. And when we go to these things, you know, everybody's scared to ask that first question. So all I kept thinking was how many of those outfits do they give them to be surgeon general? That's the only question I could come up with. <laughs> and so she kept saying like, do you have a question? And I'm like, yeah, how many of those outfits do you get? And she was like one, and it's getting really tight because I keep going to all these different dinners and I need to get a second one, but it's getting really tight. And I thought that was a really like honest, but really fun answer. Yeah. And after that, we became really good friends and she, you know, was um, really helpful when I had to make some really tough decisions about what I wanted to do in my career, where I wanted to go, um, how I fit into Republican politics, um, you know, where places could I lead? What places do I need to stand back? What did I need to learn? And, and so again, the roles of women have changed exponentially. I like to think that I, I went along with a lot of them well, um, but, and pay, and the pay has gotten so much better. It's still not where it needs to be. Um, but I remember, you know, going in and, and I think everybody needs to do this. Like, I think it's a downfall of all women, right? Honestly, sometimes when we're getting new jobs um, and even young people is that you really are afraid to tell people what you're worth and people doing the research on what you're worth. And um, I learned the hard way many, many times undervaluing um, myself um, and going for some of these jobs, but then kicking it out of the park, you know, as a, later in, in my career where I'm like, this is what I'm worth and this is what you're getting and this is where I'm going to add value. And I think if you can articulate that to people, then they get it and they understand. And if not, that's not the place to work. Um, I can think of horrible jobs. I think another thing that this whole thing has taught me is that when, know when it's time to leave, but make sure you have something to leave to. Um, instead mm. of throwing your hands up and saying, I'm going to walk out of here and show them. No, stuff will continue to, mm. somebody, an, a, another woman told me this, stuff will continue to run. It may not run well, but it will run um, mm -hmm. regardless if you're there. So um, again, I think in politics, women have made leaps and bounds. I always giggle when they, they talk about like, this is the year of the woman. And I'm like, well, every year is the year of the woman. There are some amazing women who are doing their jobs unnoticed um, in this, in politics, public service, um, and corporate America. So yeah. That's all. Yeah. I think, I think there's some good lessons to take away from that too. Just, just listening to how to, you know, handle yourself in, in different situations, given your demographic, regardless of what your demographic might be, because so many people right. are different. So given, you know, the dynamic nature of politics and business, and you've held a, a wide variety of roles within each kind of realm, does any one role stand out as the most impactful? And is there anything that threads them all together? So, you know what, the, the this is a kind of, a, I'll give you a strange answer to this. So the most impactful I want to say was my time at Coke Industries. Mm. And, and that's because it was, I was kind of going through this. I, I had two really small young children. Um, we had just moved back from, um, we lived in Africa for about a year. I, um, my husband had gotten a job and I ended up becoming the community liaison officer to the US consulate in Lagos. And um, for security reasons, we had to come back. And I ended up taking this job and my husband kept saying, what do you want to do? And I kept telling him, well, I can do this and I can do this. And you know, I need to go back into lobbying and I need to be a part of this. And he goes, wait a minute, what do you want to do? And so 
at Coke, they allowed me to kind of take the best of every job I've ever had. The intersections between government affairs, advocacy, lobbying lawmakers, but also um, convening and connecting businesses to tell amazing stories about why legislation and how legislation impacts their ability to do business. That was one of the, that's the most transformational job I've ever had. It's one of my favorite jobs um, because I was allowed to do so many different and interesting things. And, um, and we had a great budget. So it wasn't, you know, um, we know we still had to follow guidelines, but there was a moment where you could say, I have this idea. And they were always excellent and wonderful to allow us to, to try a lot of different things. Um, but that's why we were so successful at Coke Industries is because it was our ability to connect, convene. And it wasn't to tell people, hey, I need you to wear my t-shirt. I need you to wear, you can still wear your t-shirt, but I need you to wear my armband for a while. And we, this is where we're, these are the two or three things where we need to come together collectively um, to move forward with whatever we're working on, whether it be taxes or free freedom of speech or those types of issues. But um, mm -hmm. that actually definitely had to be the best job. I mean, I've, and I've, and I've seen some amazing things too, but that definitely was the one that said, okay, you can do this. This is, this is how you talk about what your comparative advantage is wrapped into one nice, neat little ball. Right. And so of course, on the flip side of that, what was most challenging? Because it, it you, you know, when you, when you, when you talk about all these things that kind of come together and culminate, like they did at Coke Industries, there has to be challenges along the way in order for you to understand that there can be that culmination of these experiences within one role. Yeah. So I, before I went to Coke, I was a horrible entrepreneur. And I keep saying that I keep telling people that story because I was, so I, um, I, when we, so we had September 11th when I was in Washington and I worked for uh, the vice president and the, and the second lady at the time. And um, after that, Washington had changed and, and I just didn't want to be there anymore. So I took the very first job that I could find and I went, came back to Minnesota and went to corporate America. And it was a really, really large company, like 50,000 employees. It was ginormous. And, um, and there were so many places to it, but there was not, I didn't feel connected to anything or connected to a mission. And so I decided that I'm, I, you know, I could do this on my own. I can create my own company. I was a horrible entrepreneur uh, because I didn't understand all the pieces of it. I, I, I was, um, I knew what I didn't know, but I didn't understand that. I thought I knew everything and I failed miserably as an entrepreneur. Um, and it wasn't until I took that step back to figure out, okay, what do I do well? And that was a really tough year of really doing a lot of soul searching and, and having to acknowledge that I'm a bad. So I was bad at this job, um, because I really, my heart wasn't in it. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And then trying to become an entrepreneur was the second escape, which really didn't work either for me, but it wasn't until that year of really thinking about what is it that I want to do? What is it that I'm good at? And where can I add value to a company? And so when I kind of made, when I was assessing my own skill sets, I kept looking at like, what do I need to add to my skill set to make me like dynamite and incredible? What, what am I not doing well? Um, and so that was a really tough and embarrassing um, going and talking to mentors, talking to other resources, like how can I get better at this? Um, 
How do I write better? How do I talk better? How do I present better? Um, those were things to me that were missing in my portfolio, which I have now come to improve upon um, and learned a lot about um, being an entrepreneur from working at Coke. I think that I wish we could wrap those last 45 seconds up in a box and put a ball around it because I think that hits at the heart of a lot of the core questions that this podcast seeks to answer for the demographic that we're trying to reach. Um, COVID exacerbated so many of the things that you experienced as an entrepreneur, just in a totally different way. You know, many people yeah. lost their jobs. Many people left their jobs. Many people are trying to find out what their next job is because the last year and a half have completely changed what they thought their passion was or what they thought they'd be doing for the next five years. Um, and asking yourselves the questions like, what can I do? What am I good at? Where can I provide value? Where are my weak spots that I should be putting more focus? Who should I be talking to in order to understand these weak spots and how to tackle them? Should I be listening to a podcast? Like, so what's next in order to answer <laughs> yes. some of these questions? Everybody yes. should be listening to this podcast. Yes. How, yes. And, and hyperbole aside, it's really important that we do ask these questions and that we do experience I think something of that nature in the course of our careers, because oftentimes in the midst of it, it seems terrible, but you come out better and you come out more prepared and you come out with tougher skin and stronger. Um, and, and I'm going to pivot away from that, but I do want to put emphasis on that before we, before we pivot into the next question. Um, and, and as we do that, I, I, I do want everybody to keep in mind that you can reach out to us with questions that you have about these particular topics. That is part of this whole gig. Now, a lot, a lot has been said, and an increasing amount, I might argue, um, by businesses in the political foray. Um, and equally as much has been said by critics and supporters of this deep intersection between business and politics. And we see it play out now all the time. Um, whether it's financial involvement, vocal involvement, lobbying, or other means. Um, well, so here's the how, thing. I'm going I'm to break it yeah, on you ahead, on that one. Ahead. Because yeah, sure. I think there's this perception that every business is involved in politics and gets it. But being in the tech space, a lot of our folks are like, oh my gosh, uh -huh. I just don't want to be noticed. Like, right. I just want to be head down, get my job done, build my company and pray to goodness they don't notice that I'm doing anything to move forward. And I think the larger companies have the bandwidth to participate in the political process, um, which I'm okay with. But the smaller companies, the mid-sizes, the startups, we need to do a better job at telling stories on, on what the impacts of these, these, this any type of legislation that's going to impact your ability to do business. And I think sometimes we're afraid to tell those stories, um, especially if you're a smaller company. Um, but these guys need to know. Lawmakers need to understand when they make these changes, they have these perceptions, they have these ideas, um, or we make these blanket statements about business controlling politics. I just, I don't think we're that organized. I think there's a handful who do it better than others. Mm. Um, but I think that there is a huge opportunity for smaller businesses um, to, to, to tell better stories. And we saw that during the tax bill a couple of years ago, for the first time mm. ever in my entire career, I had never seen a tax bill stop because there was no one had addressed what's going to happen to small business. Um, and they got a great, you know, and I think that there's some great things that happen in that. Um, and, and, and that's because we really, the U S chamber, a lot of other folks, um, NFIB, a lot of us rallied around small businesses said, you guys, this is what it's going to do. Like, how does this impact your ability to do business? And you need to start telling people like what, what that means. But again, um, government is very scary to people. 
Um, and, and, and so part of my job really in life is just to de demystify some of that. You should be able to pick up your phone and call your elected official and say, this is what you're doing, dude. Right. Right. And it's probably not done enough. In fact, I can right. guarantee you it's not done enough. So, nope. so I'll change my question. Cause, cause that, that leads me to, I, I want to change it now. My, my original question was probably a little too blanket, I guess, cause it was, it was, what's your question on the future of business and politics, but I want to, I want to pivot it a little bit and, and say, what can small businesses do better in 2021 and should big businesses change their approach in terms of um, the intersection of, of business and politics um, in order for small businesses to take a, a larger piece of the pie? Yeah. Okay. So the intersection between business and politics, I really think, again, I think there is a role for business to play. And that's why you have these large trade associations. You have the National Cone Growers, you have the Farm Bureau, you have the United States Chamber of Commerce, you have the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Um, and they're all, you know, doing their best to, to for their members. But there are thousands and thousands of people who, again, who, who, or it's not that they're not concerned with, or with politics or government. It's that they're busy trying to earn a living. They're trying to build their business. They're trying to make sure their employees have jobs. And, um, and I know it seems weird, you know, networking is also the nasty word. Everybody, nobody, nobody wants to look like a social climber, but networking is important. And your elected official needs to know, they need to know that you exist in their district, what you do, how you do it, how many employees you have, and you need to regularly check in like, hey, you know, you guys are doing a great job or I don't think you guys are doing a good job because of X and not just making blanket statements, but really looking at how some of these policy changes are gonna impact your ability to be, do business. Um, some of the free speech stuff coming down the pike is concerning to me um, from a small business perspective and from a tech perspective. Um, and by creating more um, regulations and onerous, you know, laws on smaller companies, you know, the small folks aren't going to be able to compete with some of these things that they're talking about. And that's the reason I see there is a huge opportunity for small businesses to really speak up and tap in. So if you're in manufacturing, making sure that you're, you know, you talk with your local manufacturing guys, your local chamber, your, if you're in tech, your, your, your local tech association. Um, now we are a 501c3, which means we're a nonprofit. We can't lobby, we can't advocate. However, we can educate people on the general impacts of how things will, what would happen on the industry. Um, but I, I think that's really important. Um, that's the one thing I miss about this job is I wish we were able to do um, more advocacy, but because of the nature of the work that we do in our, my organization, the Nebraska Tech Collaborative, um, we are um, elected officials from the federal level and the state level have actually taken notice about with the work that we're doing and the changes we're trying to make and workforce and tech and business and small business. So I think by being a good um, partner <laughs> um, with all of our other friends in the trade associations and other 501c4s and c6s um, that people notice and really respect um, the opinions that we have um, around small business and tech. Do you think COVID has made a positive or negative impact on your ability to do those things? Um, from your perspective in particular as a businesswoman, but also as a public servant, because you've been on both sides of that coin. And so from that perspective, what's emerged as the most meaningful change post-pandemic for, for better or for worse? Um, most meaningful change. I think the, 
So for the first time ever, I will say government did exactly what it was supposed to do in the middle of this pandemic. It got relief to people that needed it, um, regardless of which person you liked and who you wanted to win last November, but they did what they were supposed to do. And, um, and I am grateful for that. I think that's the, that's what they, they serve for going forward. I think it's going to be very interesting because, um, it's going to be interesting just because there's a lot of like, you know, it's still about money and financial relief. And I know there are other sections of the country who are really um, having some uh, really high unemployment numbers. So uh, here in the Midwest, um, you know, just in tech alone, we've got 2,600 open jobs every single day. And those are the ones that are advertised. That's not even the stuff that doesn't get advertised, but 2,600 open positions and um, policies with remote work, um, the pandemic has really helped companies recognize that you don't have to warm your seat every day in the office, um, that you can do your work from anywhere, which has been absolutely fantastic. Now it's going to be interesting to see how people go back to work. Um, and are, are we going to be creating, um, a new types of employees, kind of the ones that show up and the ones that are remote, like how do we equalize some of those things? Um, that we've seen some incredible innovations um, around how uh, companies are delivering um, tele telehealth, mental health services. Mm -hmm. um, the other cool thing, I don't know if you're seeing this, but companies are doing um, a lot more of these kind of be well perks type things. Um, oh yeah. Which I've, yeah, which has created a whole new industry, which I love. So it's, you know, somebody showing up at your house with lunch or, um, you know, did you, you know, how are you doing? To, like, I think people are really more invested on ever, ever other people's well-being, if that makes any sense. But that's some of those unintended things that, that I hope continue to stick around. Um, I think the next probably six to 18 months is going to be um, not problematic, but I think it's going to be a challenge for us, you know, especially for um, businesses in the Midwestern states. So Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, Dakotas, um, Oklahoma, Texas, the right down the center, um, just because we're all experiencing, um, we have a shortage of workers here in the Midwest and, and, and that's a really big problem. Um, but I think for COVID, if you were in the Midwest, you know, we shut down for maybe six weeks, um, but our kids were back in school in August, um, finished in May. And so we didn't see as many, as much um, disruption as some of the larger states did. So um, I just think it led people, you know, I think people really took an evaluated what they want to do in their careers, um, what if they want to be entrepreneurs, if they want to try something different. A lot of people moved home, it sounds like. Um, so I don't know, again, I, I think the jury's still out. Um, plus it's an odd time. It's a new administration. So they had COVID, they had to build an entire infrastructure, um, through this pandemic, which I would not wish on anybody. Um, and they did a really good job of trying to, you know, kind of the transition of power was not very smooth, but, um, but, but there, but it, it has taken place and we now have got to figure out how we're going to move forward. Um, but th I think there's a lot of opportunities for the smaller business and tech companies. But the other thing too, is I don't want people to be complacent. We need to keep an eye on the stuff that's getting passed or introduced, um, and really taking a look, like, how is this going to impact my ability to do business? 
There were there were a number of pieces that that you talked on as we as we carried this conversation into a bit of a discussion about about the role of college and the role of St. Ben's and St. John's in particular that I think St. Ben's and St. John's do a really good job on. Um, and, and college in particular provides an opportunity to learn a lot. And, and particularly liberal arts education gives you this opportunity, at least, of being a generalist. You know, can I, can I learn in different spaces and, and really adopt the ability to critically think um, around, you know, how is the world of politics impacting the world of technology and small business? And can I make that connection? And then can I act on it? And then another piece that you talked about was the role of mental health and, um, you know, this collectiveness that's emerging from the pandemic and community. And community, of course, is one of these key pillars of St. Ben's and St. John's. Um, and I think many, many people at St. Ben's and St. John's and that come out of four-year residential institutions are better for it because they build these strong bonds and they understand the relationship that, that can be continued and the importance of relationships moving out forward. So let's talk about that a little bit. And St. Ben's and St. John's and the role that that played in your career, you talked about it a bit at the beginning. But from your time as a student to now your role as a trustee, what impact has St. Ben's had on you then, which again, you touched on, but now, and what are you seeing that's recurring? Okay, so the one thing it allowed me to, or a couple things it allowed me to do, it allowed me the space, it provided me the space I needed to try something new, but it also provided me the space to fail. Um, and I talk about this a lot when I talk to students, um, I mentor quite a few students on campus, but being able to fail and fail fast. I think um, a lot of times right now you come out of high school and you've got that 4.0 GPA and it's all about the grade. And this is what I'm going to be when I grow up. I think going to St. Ben, Ben's and St. John's allows you that space to take a little bit of a breather to, to still focus on what you're passionate about, but it allows you to try some other things and actually take a hard look at those intersections on how how you're going to grow as a person. So again, we've a lot of times, you know, I talk to a lot of business and economics kids or students and um, I'm like, are you taking any tech classes? Well, why do I need those? Um, mm. I'm like, because you need to, you know, this is kind of, this evolution is starting to take place and you just don't want to be caught flat footed or I'll talk to English majors, psychology majors, history majors, and they kind of do like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out. And I said, well, you know, in tech, the best project managers are psychology, history, and English majors. Why? Their ability to write and tell stories and take these big ideas and condense them down to easily um, digestible bite-sized pieces for regular people to understand. That's an incredible talent. Um, I don't think we all understand that that's what's happening at St. Ben's and St. John's. Um, but it's, again, it has afforded me that those are the two big things. It, it's, it's allowed me the space to try new things and it's allowed me the space to fail. Even on the trustees, I remember um, coming on to the trustees and trying to understand, I knew a lot about St. Ben's, not as much as I thought I knew, but I learned so much. And then as we've been talking about, you know, strong integration, um, working with St. John's trustees has been so much fun, but I learned a lot too on how alike and how different the institutions are. And, um, and, and so that's been a, played a, a pivotal role in kind of how I approach my work. Um, and, and even now taking on this incredible task of building, basically building a, a tech nonprofit startup uh, is trying to figure out how to fail, fail fast 
What can I learn from this? Where can we add value? Um, what are, you know, there's just so many things. And so again, it's being in that, that environment um, allowed me to do those things because I remember again, my first semester, A, B, D, and F, I had never failed a class before. I had no idea what to do. Um, and I was completely dumbfounded and shocked. And Sister Coleman O'Connell, who's the president at the time, um, I was in trouble a lot. I sat outside that office door many, many weeks, um, many months, many years, um, every week, probably forever. Um, but I remember her saying to me, like, I need, I want you to fail. This was a good thing that happened to you. And of course I'm sobbing. I'm like, no, it's not. It ruined my GPA. Well, you're going to have to try harder and you're going to have to figure out, you know, what do you want? Like, you need to just keep moving forward and, and get some other experiences. And that's kind of how I helped, fell into this whole political science piece um, of the world. And if it wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have failed that one class, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have gone into political science. Well, part of St. Ben's and St. John's, and it's not just St. Ben's and St. John's, but it's, it's college unanimously is, is learning that the intangibles are equally as important as the, the tangible yeah. goals. Um, and you know, that's, can I connect with other people? Can I, can I build a story around something that's difficult and make it easy to tell to somebody who may not understand it otherwise? Um, can I be empathetic? Um, yeah. Do I have drive? You know, these questions can't be answered without putting yourself in an environment, whether it's in Collegeville and St. Joe or whether it's in the Twin Cities or whether it's in Omaha or Lincoln. Or um, being afraid those- to, or is being afraid okay? I remember somebody, a student right. asking me, um, what motivated you to do, what motivated you in the work that you've done? And my answer always is, it's based on fear. Fear of failure, fear of not measuring up, fear of not getting it done the way somebody else thinks it needs to get done. But that's mm-hmm. been the overall motivating factor is it had been has been fear because you don't want to, nobody wants to do it wrong. But I always tell everybody, you need to embrace that and say, okay, these are the things that I'm afraid of. And these are the safeguards that I'm going to attempt to put in to keep me from failing or to do my due diligence to understand what's happening. But it's okay to be afraid. And it's also okay to ask for help. Um, I tell everybody, you know, you need to find a mentor and not just one. Um, we call I call it a board of directors. So I've got somebody in every little space. So I've got a lawyer here. I've got somebody that does marketing, somebody else that talks about like, how am I doing? But a group of people that I know I can call on at any time to say, I need to work through this. And it's actually an exercise I tell a lot of my um, mentees to do too. Make a list of all the people in your sphere that you can go to and ask for help. And I did that when I took this job too. And who would come to your, like, who or would these people come and help you if you called and picked up the phone and said, I need your help. And um, I created a list of a hundred, which was weird, but I also looked at what the demographics of those people were too. And, and shockingly, um, there were more men than women on my list, which I was and again, I've spent my entire career talking about women's leadership and, and those types of things. Um, and, and, and so, and then did I have enough of underrepresented groups, you know, African-Americans, um, Asian-Americans, Latino, Latinx, all of those 
did I like, who are these people? Like, do I have a really diverse list of 100? Um, and we can always do better, but, um, there were moments where I was like, gosh, this list isn't as great as I thought it was. Um, and it's evolved. And I go back and compare different lists at different times of my life of who I thought at that time I could pick up the phone and call and ask for help. And it's a really interesting exercise to go through. Um, but if the other thing I would impress on, you know, your listeners, especially the ones from St. John's and St. Ben's is that there are a lot of people um, in this alumni um, or alumni network who really want to help. Um, and, right. and all you have to do is pick up the phone um, and call them. Like I Ask. say this all the time. I hear from more Johnny's and Benny's I'm working on it, but um, yeah, again, I like, if you pick up the phone and call and say, Hey, do you have five, 10 minutes to kind of talk? And I am always happy to do that. And I don't think that, um, that we as alums do that enough with each other. Students don't do it enough. I don't think teachers do it enough. Um, and so again, there are a lot of us who want to help and who have had some incredible life experience that we just, we want to make, sh- we want to share, but we also want to make sure that you don't fall into the same mistakes that we did. Um, completely. Yep. Completely. One, one last question before we wrap this up um, with our final question. How do you see the role of college changing today? Um, what role does it play in creating new leaders? Um, it, it's clearly changing. It's changed in the last 30 years. You know, I would argue it's changed a lot in the last five. In your opinion, where should it be going and is it on the right track? So that's a tough question just because I think there's going to be some evolution in colleges and I especially when you look at, you know, there's a lot of things right now um, at, the, at the U.S. Department of Education, you know, talking about um, president, the president's talking about community colleges free for everyone. Well, what is that going to do to the private institutions? Um, what does that mean? Are we creating a new class of college students? Um, you know, right now we keep talking about, you know, college isn't for every everyone. But I think I think as many people, if, if you have an interest in in education and you have an interest in learning something new and exciting, college is the place for you. Um, you may not be a 4.0 student. There's a plenty of places for those of us who have been regular Joes. Um, I always strive to be in the top 50%. I've never wanted, I never needed to be that, feel the need to be number one, um, which again, I'm very honest about that. But I think college um, is, it's gonna tighten, um, you know, our population's going down, um, you know, it's, there's still this perception of going to a private institution that you somehow are rich or you have all these things and you're just trying to um, be better than you really are. Um, and, I, and I don't see it that way. I mean, um, a private institution, I mean, St. Ben's and St. John's, I, I, I say this, saved my life. It's transformational. Um, I don't think I would have made it at a large institution. I don't think I would have had the number of people that cared about whether or not I made it to class, the number of people that cared about, you know, how was I doing mentally and physically? Um, you know, how was I, you know, feeling about my roommate or what was I gonna do after college? Like people cared along the way. And, and that's why these two institutions are so special and our relationships with the sisters um, and, the, and the entire Benedictine community. I just, again, I, I think, for me, it was just, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And, and without it, I, I cannot, I just don't think um, I would have had as much success as I had without the life lessons that I've learned from being part of those two institutions. 
I think that's a really good way to wrap up this section. I think college is so imperative beyond what you learn in the classroom and beyond the experiences that you have in your, you know, your hour long blocks with the professor, as important as those are. It, it, it's, it's transformational in the ways that you can't understand until you experience them and don't fully understand until you've experienced them past tense 10 years ago. Yeah, right. um, that's a really, really important thing to remember as you're leaving Collegeville and Minnesota Street um, to keep in to keep in mind as you start to evolve as a human being, um, and however you define success. Now, speaking of success, you've clearly found success in your life, um, and you found success so much so that you've been sharing how to be successful with others. And I think that's a really important thing. So, as with every other episode, we will ask you the question: What is next for you, John Van Doon? What is next for you in 2021? What is next for you beyond that? Oh my gosh. Well, again, I took the helm of the Nebraska Tech Collaborative uh, October of 19 and basically built an entire organization in the middle of a pandemic, which has been absolutely incredible. So I think I'm going to hang my hat here for a little while um, to see what we can build and to see how big we can build it, um, how many people we can attract to the state. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that there are some other things down the pike, which um, hmm. hopefully I'll be able to come back and talk to you about maybe um, in 2022. We'd love um, that. Yeah, but um, I'm excited about what the future holds. And and uh, I, I don't have anything to announce right now, but there's some really cool stuff that um, big I'm things looking coming at. For soon. Next, big things coming soon. Um, I don't know how big they are, but they're big for me. And, and so I just, I'm excited, so. And that's important. Yeah. Well, Jonah, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and chatting with us today. I certainly learned a lot. And I know everybody else will too. Really enjoyed this discussion. I did too. Thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. You're wonderful. And again, um, I just appreciate you asking me to be part of this. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode of So What's Next. If you have any questions about Jonah, this episode, or the topics we discussed, or you would like any more resources, please DM the Yak Instagram page or email us at csbsjuyac at gmail.com, and we will get in touch. Joining us next month is John McGee, SJU alum, former vice president for planning and strategy at St. Ben's and St. John's, and current head of St. John's Preparatory School. Full disclosure, and in case you haven't made the connection already, he also happens to be my dad. Together, and for our very first in-person episode, we'll be answering a question, among many others, that I would venture to guess we have all asked once or twice. Is college and my time spent in college really worth it? Make sure you tune back in and give this episode a listen in the first few weeks of August. You won't want to miss this one. As always, please subscribe to the So What's Next page on your platform of choice and share it with your friends. We are looking forward to seeing you here next time. Thank you.